Hello everybody, it is the time of year to begin registering for one or two of my slow groups that begin in July. My slow groups are these special groups where I focus on one topic and we deeply unpack it over the course of six months. So these are highly nuanced, deep dive, advanced groups. These are excellent for those of you who have taken my six week course or who just want to focus on one particular topic through a somatic and trauma-informed lens. The two that are opening up in July, or will begin in July, are my embodied parenting group and my embodied nutrition group. The embodied parenting group is just like it sounds, learning how to parent from your body, learning how to ground yourself in your parenting so you're not parenting from a reactive triggered place, but from a much more conscious place so you can actually find joy in your parenting instead of it being a total hellscape, like some of you have told me it is, and I've experienced it myself. The other group is an embodied nutrition group. This has been requested for years. For the past four years after students complete my course, they say, can you please do a course on nutrition and make it longer than six weeks? So finally, I can say, yes, you can, and I can, and I did. It is a six-month unpacking of the intersection between trauma nutrition, and somatics. How do we recover from stress and trauma via food? How do we relate to food as a being and not just some object on the plate? What's the biochemistry of food? Why is it not the best for my blood sugar to have toast, but lentils are just fine if they're both carbohydrates? All of this and more will be unpacked in this six-month group. To register for these groups, please go to my website, holisticlifenavigation.com, and click Groups or you can click the link in the episode details below. Registration closes on June 1st. It is only open through May because we need the month of June to prepare everybody for July. I'm looking forward to this deep dive with you all. I'll see you there. Hey everyone, before I start the episode today, I just wanted to remind you that my spring six-week course is currently open for registration. It will be open for about 10 more days. It closes on April 27th. Please go to my website, holisticlifenavigation.com, where you can sign up. On today's episode, I navigate transforming ADHD into RITC the radical inability to conform. Welcome to the Holistic Life Navigation Podcast, where we discuss every aspect of life through the lens of somatic psychology, nutrition, and self-inquiry. My name is Luis Mojica, and I'm a somatic educator who teaches people how to find safety inside themselves so they can better navigate this strange and sensational human experience. Your time to learn begins now. So I, I wrote a bit ago on Instagram, I wrote this. ADHD is the result of a radical intolerance to conform. I was diagnosed at age nine with ADHD, Tourette syndrome, and nervous tics. I would wince and scrunch up my face twitch my fingers and compulsively hum high-pitched sounds. I distracted children around me and was ridiculed for this all throughout middle school. So I was prescribed an antipsychotic sedative called Haldol to suppress the symptoms. Take that in. 
a nine-year-old developing their body on a sedative because of inconvenience. My mom flushed the pills down the toilet and would lovingly say, Honey, you're making your faces again. You could say that was my early exposure to embodiment and awareness of the subconscious. It turned out many years later that I was a singer with many songs inside of me, many screams and cries that were repressed and unable to come out from when I was constantly bullied. This humming was a slow leak of those muted expressions. I became a guitarist and pianist and wrote over 150 songs in a few years. The twitch in my fingers had something to say, and these instruments allowed me to express and hear them. My ADHD also turned out to be an expression of something new and strange, a mind that just couldn't conform, a mind that just couldn't be colonized or dominated. Something in my DNA wouldn't allow it. Was it my Taino or Irish ancestors? Does it matter? All I knew was I couldn't pretend to be interested in things that didn't interest me or feel good to me. Like, I can't. I can't even try. Someone commented that I was boasting about not being able to conform. Maybe I am. I don't feel like I am. And maybe that's the medicine I need now after a lifetime of shame. Failing everything I tried academically and being told that there was something wrong with me. So yes, I'm boasting now. Why not? I've learned that boasting is just speaking about my truth without shame. Let's love our uniquenesses and remember that they only cause us to fall short by design. So let's redesign. Let's live from these expressions instead of against them. It took me over 17 years to get this, so there's no hurry even if it feels like there is. Just start by noticing how well you love these parts of you, and then from there, the change is natural and comes when it's time. I really like this idea of ADHD being a radical inability to conform. Uh, and I say that because when you're in certain um, situations or environments or systems, there's a standard that we're being judged to and held uh, against and expected to perform as. And brains with ADHD, they, they function very differently uh, than brains without ADHD. I'm actually going to look up right now uh, what episode it is that I had Megan Kirstead on because she explained how, let me see here, episode 85 is titled Loving Your Neurodivergence with Megan Kirstead. Check out that episode. We go into ADHD um, in a bit more, um, a bit more detail around the how dopamine relates to it. Um, I also have a great episode with Shannon Myers on ADHD, and that one is twenty four episode twenty four. So these are two episodes you can listen to to get a little more detail. Um, but what's interesting, what I learned from both episodes, first one with Shannon is nutrition and environment and trauma, how much that plays into ADHD. And what I learned from Meg is how the brain of someone with ADHD, um, it doesn't make dopamine as easy as someone without. So all that really comes down to is someone without ADHD can focus and find interest in things even that they aren't interested in. They have a, kind of the, they have the capacity to have a discipline, 
in um, showing up to something that doesn't resonate for them. Someone with ADHD doesn't have that capacity. It just doesn't exist for us. And it's actually comes down to biochemistry and hormones and brain chemistry. And this poses a real problem for people. It did for me for a long time because when you're trying to fit your brain into a, an environment or system that wasn't built for that kind of flexibility, you're going to fall short. And I fell short over and over and over again. I dropped out of college several times. I couldn't, I couldn't get passing grades. I couldn't focus on things that weren't interesting to me. And it, you know, it, it's thought of as kind of like, um, um, like a millennial experience of um, entitlement, let's say. And that could definitely be part of it. Uh, for me, I don't feel a sense of entitlement. Um, it's really the way my brain and body works. There's an actual overwhelm and shutdown that occurs when I'm just not interested. I know plenty of people with this brain and this diagnosis who take medication to stimulate themselves into being able to be interested, to stimulate, to bypass the body's boundary of shutting down against something it doesn't like. And I have no problem with that because for some of us, we don't have the, the I don't know if it's a luxury or what we want to call it. We don't have the experience of making our own rules. Now, I have always had the experience of making my own rules. And it's not because I was born into wealth. It's not because I've had a thriving business my whole life. It's just because um, I was lucky enough to find a spiritual practice at a young age that allowed me to um, not compare myself as much to the standard. So I lived for for a long time, I would say from from age 16, 17, until I was 28. 930. Um, it's a long time. It's a good 14 years. I just made minimum wage. I, I didn't have a career. I didn't make salary. I didn't have um I didn't have health insurance or um retirement or I didn't have any of these. I didn't have a paid vacation. I had service jobs that were really demanding in one way, but for me as a relational being, they were the best. I loved working in health food stores. I loved working at corner stores. I loved working at this little macaroni and cheese shop in Brooklyn I worked at. It was called Brooklyn Mac. I think it was on Norman Avenue. Is that right? Manhattan and Norman, I want to say. Um, those of you that might remember it in Greenpoint. So I, I had these jobs that would seem like hell for most people in their 20s. And for me, it was fantastic. I, I just got to do what I love, which is relating. Relating is my dopamine hit. Relating brings me into focus. Relating inspires me. It allows my body to be alive. I just unfurl and express and thrive when I can relate. So being in situations that were non-relational, it just it just wouldn't work for my brain. And so I never took the route of medication. Like I wrote earlier, I was prescribed Haldol because I had Tourette's and nervous tics, not for the ADHD. I would have been simultaneously prescribe some kind of a stimulant like Adderall or something to balance out the sedative of Haldol. But the idea of Haldol was to sedate my Tourette's and my um, nervous tics. 
And what's so brilliant about Tourette's and nervous tics is it's the body's way of showing that something is suppressed and trying to complete. It's like if someone threw something at you, <clears throat> and if you're watching on the video, you can see what I'm doing. Someone throws like a ball at me, like do this. If my body gets kind of stuck in that motion, I might have little twitches that come in like this. And we call it Tourette's. That's how mine were. Mine were mostly in my face. It'd be like this scrunching up or be opening up really big. Now, once in a while when I'm in public and when I'm getting activated, not dysregulated, but just kind of excited by people, I'll make those faces still, but they're much, much smaller than they used to be. It's just the pattern of how socially I or my social engagement system, my face expresses activation and charge. Um, but it, it was, it would be pretty like every two minutes, I, I would do it for many, many years. And simultaneously, I'd be humming. I'd be going, just like that. Just like that. Constantly while squinching on my face and also making my face look really big and shocked. And it was brilliant. I would come to find, and I'm still coming to find, these specific traumatic events when I was bullied, um, a few situations around sexual trauma, where I was frozen in that face. And it never quite left my system. Still, after years of doing somatic therapy and practicing it and nutrition and all the work that I do, they haven't fully left my body yet. And I say that because it's okay. They don't have to leave my body fully for me to be happy and healed. Healed for me is just being in relation with these parts, understanding these parts, holding space for these parts, no longer shaming or othering these parts. I welcome them. I go out into the world and I teach and I do public events and I do private events and I'm on Zoom. And sometimes I make these faces and I, no one seems to care and I don't really seem to care. So to me, it's all okay. But for a long time growing up, it was, uh, it was hell because I was so, I was already ridiculed for a lot of other reasons. And then this just added to, you know, the arsenal of ridicule that I was given from from the my fellow peers. Why am I saying that? Because I find it profound that the body's always trying to express something through the body, not through conscious mind and language and intellect, but through the soma, through expression and gesture. And any kind of impulsive, compulsive, unconscious behavior that emerges from us is the body trying to tell us something or release something? Maybe both. So whatever the situation is, whatever the condition you've been diagnosed with or the symptoms you notice in yourself, if they are unconscious, meaning I don't consciously choose to do this, I don't say, right now I'm going to make my eyes really big. It just kind of happened and oh, I realized it afterwards. Or I snap at someone, I yell at them, and then afterwards I feel bad for it. These are unconscious experiences. What unfurls from us in those, and I should say the root of these unconscious experiences is unprocessed stress and trauma. It's moments where we couldn't release, and so our bodies get stuck in this kind of desire to release, and at the same time repression, and it becomes a loop. And that's how addiction is as well. So Tourette's syndrome ADHD, nervous tics, these diagnoses I was given from age nine all throughout high school, these became assets for me 
Because as I started learning the language of somatics, I started understanding these, these conditions and diagnoses as expressions. So they weren't states. They aren't my identity. They're just expressions. And expressions invite the question, from where do you come? It's an expression. It's coming from something instead of just the state of it is. So when I looked at ADHD through this lens, I started noticing, okay, this is how my body expresses. How can I nurture? How can I listen? How can I relate to this expression? And first, I wanted to even identify what it was I was relating to. Was I relating to being lazy, unmotivated, overwhelmed, unable to finish things? No, because that wasn't true for me. If I was orienting toward um, a career, if I was orienting toward um, certain tasks in life, certain um, social agreements, essentially societal expectations that we're all born into. If I was orienting toward those things, yes, I was unmotivated, I was lazy, I was apathetic. When I oriented toward other things like art, like music, um, like customer service, uh, being relational, having a, a tidy, minimal house, those things were, I did not, I did not have a deficit of attention there. I could spend eight hours working on one song. That's a shitload of intention and attention. What I started learning was actually ADHD, ADHD does not mean I have a deficit in attention or a hyper, uh, hyperactivity disorder. What it meant for me, and I had a proper diagnosis, it wasn't a self-diagnosis, for me, ADHD meant and means I have attention for what interests me, not for what I'm supposed to be doing. And I want us to just feel into that for a moment. Those of you who have ADHD, if you're a therapist, a doctor, a parent, someone that works with someone that has it, let's just play with this for a minute. We don't have an attention deficit at all. We have a specific place that our attention goes to. I'm speaking as someone that has ADHD. That's an important distinction. Because if we have an attention deficit, we think there's something wrong with us and we get on medication, we stimulate ourselves into having attention. When we notice, I actually have kind of like almost superhuman attention for very specific things. Then we start to say, ooh, what are the things that interest me? This is where Megan Kirstead's work is so great. What things give me the dopamine that help me focus, the natural dopamine, not a stimulant, but an actual life experience that, ooh, it makes me live. Just feel that for a moment. Notice for yourself. And I don't care if you have ADHD or not. I want everyone to try this out. Because I think we're all on a spectrum of how, how our brains are able to connect to things that we, quote, should connect to compared to what we desire, right? So just noticing that. Where are the situations, what activities, what kind of people, what moments, what environments do I have a lot of capacity and attention for? What situations, people, environments, activities do I not, which are really hard for me to motivate myself through? This is an important inquiry because we stop identifying with this idea of having an attention deficit and we start getting curious well, let me start pivoting toward what I have attention for. And this becomes our medicine. So I'll give you a, a 
real example. Um, when I was studying nutrition, I had a lot of attention because I was thrilled by nutrition. And the moment I had to go into biochemistry or mathematics, I was so, it was impossible for me because I, I had no interest. I was more interested in the food and the food's properties and how the food related. There's that relational piece with me again to my body and to land. I wasn't interested in the science. I wasn't interested in the, the algebra. I, that did, did not do anything for me. So when I had to go through studying math or an equation or biochemistry, I would spend let's say 20, 30 minutes doing it. And then I would notice when I hit that wall, I would notice when my body was shutting down, my mind was dissociating. And that was my signal. Not to say I can't do this, but to say right now, I lack the capacity. I lack the attention. I lack the interest. And then I would pivot towards something I loved. So I wouldn't zone out on Netflix. That's very easy to do. And I've done plenty of that. But I would do something that engaged me, something that brought me to life. Now, at the time I was living in New York City, there were two things that brought me life. I mean, there were many things, but the two top things that were kind of predictable were composing songs. So I would go over to my piano, I would sing, I would write, I would record, and walking to the park. I loved walking to the park and sitting in the park and just watching people. So I would take these little breaks to do things that brought me back into my body that helped me expand my capacity, that nurtured the part of me that was saying, I'm bored, I want fun. And even if it was for 10 or 15 minutes, it would give me, it would gift me the, the added capacity to then go back to this thing that I didn't have a lot of attention for. And this is why I'm saying we don't have to settle for this idea of like the millennial, I'm entitled, I'm just not going to do it because I'm neurodivergent. I don't believe in that. Because I can and have done it. And many of my friends and clients have too. This is why I love the word holistic and why I use it in my practice. Holistic means everything belongs. We use everything. So if I'm in a situation, whether it's a job or a relationship, or I'm studying for something, or I have to clean my house, whatever it is, and I don't have attention for it, especially if you have ADHD, what overwhelms us is the mentality that I have to do it is this black and white binary of I just have to sit through this thing that's horrible for me until I dissociate or burn out. When the reality is I can titrate it into my life. So if I have to clean my house, and there's six rooms in my house to clean. I start with one. And the moment my body shows me through dissociation, through numbness, through feelings of pressure and overwhelm, the moment my body shows me those signals of you're done here, if I don't judge that you're done, I just listen. So if I'm in the middle of the room, and let's say I have 60% of the room cleaned, and my body's like, I can't do any more of this room. My mind might say, what's wrong with you? You haven't even finished one room, you have six more to go. Look, how can you call yourself an adult? This, this stream of accusations and guilt and verbal abuse run through my mind to me about the situation, that stream is going to cause me to bypass my signal that says stop and force myself to push through it till I burn out till I'm exhausted, or it's going to shut me down. I'm going to go into a freeze or a collapse state where I can't mobilize. And that's when I go to Netflix. That's when I go into binge eating. That's when I turn toward addictions and coping behaviors, right? Where's the middle? The middle is, oh, my body's saying I'm done. 
Without judgment, I listen. I listen. What does my body need? It needs to stretch. It needs some water. It needs a snack. It needs a break to call a friend. It needs to ask someone to help me. It needs to listen to music and dance. It shows me all these things that it knows, nothing I or anyone could tell you, that give you that life, that give you that beautiful vitality that then gifts you some capacity to go back and finish the 40% of that room. And it might take you five days to clean your house, or it might take someone else three hours. Who cares? If we're not comparing, but we're just listening to our expression of this attention quote deficit, we're noticing the signals of I'm at capacity for this task. I'm going to pause and come back. And in that vacillating, that pendulating between pausing and finding life and going back to the thing we need to do, we experience a beautiful balance. And every, each and every one of you are going to experience this differently based on your circumstance. Whether it's work, you might have an eight-hour job where you can't just leave for 15 minutes. So you honor that. Maybe you have one minute where you can listen to a song. Maybe you can go to the bathroom and stretch your arms really big and moan. Maybe you can ask someone for a hug. Maybe you can text somebody something and ask them to send you a funny picture. There's so many little things you can do to titrate in this vitality. So you're not bypassing and shutting down or stimulating yourself with medications or caffeines or not eating to create that dopamine hit so you can push through, right? So I found it so helpful. I've been playing with this acronym RITC, the radical inability to conform. Because when we think about ADHD, that's really what we're talking about. It's a, a brain that just can't conform. It just can't do something because it's supposed to. It must do something because it wants to. This is a problem because a lot of our culture and society is built on what should instead of what is desired. And it's a reality that we can't always do what we desire. And I find it very humbling to notice those moments where I lack the attention, where I lack the interest, and my reality is keeping me there. Can I practice humility that even though I don't want to do this, this is what I must do right now? And then can I follow up on the parts of me that were saying I'm done, that were saying I need a break or I need to laugh or I need to eat? Can I follow up on those parts? So sit with this, see where this takes you. and. Um, Thanks for being on this little journey with me today. So that's the end of today's episode. Notice where you feel the episode inside of your body. Those sensations, those expressions. That's how your body speaks to you. Sit with it. Be with it. And let whatever wants to come up, come up. Because all the wisdom you're looking for is right there in those sensations. If you want to go deeper into these practices or find more information about my work, please visit holisticlifenavigation.com. I'll see you next time. Did you know your food cravings are actually a doorway to your subconscious? They are. We tend to see cravings as something bad or something we just give into mindlessly. 
But when you embody your cravings, you're able to notice they're just blossoming from a certain place that has a certain need and needs your attention. Join me on Wednesday, May 29th, as I unpack this in a new webinar called Cravings Destigmatized. In this webinar, I'll help you learn the difference between a nutritional craving and an emotional craving, as well as how do we use cravings to get in touch with our unmet needs and any of our unconscious, unprocessed emotional experiences. It begins at 4 p.m. Eastern, and everyone who registers will get a replay. You can find the link in the episode details, and you can also go to www.holisticlifenavigation.com and click on events, and the information is right there. Hope to see you there.